Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special fireside chat episode of Araqi Voices. This is your host, Hassan Haddad. Araqi Voices is a podcast that showcases Araqi perspectives and insights about current developments in our country. Araqi Voices is produced by 1001 Araqi Thoughts. Six months ago, Araqis voted in the early parliamentary election on October 10th. To this day, Iraq is hobbling along with an interim caretaker government as Iraq's political elite are unable to reach an agreement on the shape of the next government. We've seen a lot in the last six months, including sit-ins, Supreme Court rulings, and ballistic missiles. To delve deeper into this subject, I am joined today by the people who make this podcast possible. Mohammed Al-Wa'ili, Ali Al-Mawlawi, and Hamza Haddad. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Thanks, Hassan. Let's first take a step back and talk about the key moments over the past six months that led us where we are today. Which events do you think were the most consequential? Ali? Yeah, so of course, a lot has happened over the last six months. um, But for me, the two most consequential issues are, first, the rise in the prominence uh, of the judiciary. Um, and its role in trying to mediate and adjudicate between, uh, you know, the rival political blocs in forming the government. And, you know, the Supreme Court has made a number of um, really uh, consequential decisions. Um, and then secondly, I would say is the decision by both Halbusi and Barzani uh, to join Muqtada Sadr's um, three-way alliance. I mean, I personally didn't see it coming, even though there were indications early on that um, this was something that was in the works, but I didn't think that it would actually materialize. Um, and we can discuss why it actually um, happened in the end and um, where we think it may lead eventually. Uh, but for me, so those were the two sort of key consequential um, moments or um, or milestones um, over the past six months. Hamad, what do you make of this? Yeah, I mean, Ali covered most of the important events, but I would also like uh, to add the change of the narrative. Um, I think for a very long time, we haven't heard politicians being so clear about um, how they think about uh, the situation and how they interpret uh, the other uh, the, the other's position. And they basically say it clearly that you are, for instance, with the coordination framework, they say you are trying to divide us and the other side says you have been prosecuting us for such a long time. So in the past, we were talking most of the time about, you know, unity and national um, unity governments and uh, Sunnah and Shia one and Arabs and Kurds and one. But uh, I think um, the events in the, in the last few months, um, they showed a different narrative that we haven't been used to. Ali, why has this become an issue now? And what does this say about the nature of a broad consensus required to move forward? So first, the point that Mohammed made about the shift in narrative, I think that's a really important one. Um, because, you know, there's been a lot of debate over the last uh, few years as to whether Iraq actually, you know, moved beyond um, sort of uh, ethno-sectarian identity politics. And if you look at the political discourse over the last six months, uh, what you're seeing is sort of very entrenched um, form of identity politics where, um, you know, the, the Shia uh, coordination framework is talking um, about uh, securing the rights of the majority Shia. The Sunnis are talking about reclaiming uh, rights um, that they had lost over the past 10 years. And then, of course, the Kurds are talking in exclusively Kurdish terms. Um, so I think you can make an argument that 
in fact, the, the there never really was a shift um, away from identity politics. Um, it was just put on hold um, uh, for for a period of time, um, and now I think it's very clear uh, what kind of political landscape um, we have. I'm going to disagree with you on this because I don't think that the narrative shifted um, uh, without there being a cause for it. I would say that Iraqi politics actually did shift. Um, you know, to something post-sectarian during the 2018 elections, when you had Sunni Shia and Kurds uh, running on on the same list, uh, like Abadi's uh, victory uh, list. But what we saw is that those that ran and won didn't end up getting anything out of it. And so what we saw is a relapse to old school Iraqi politics in 2021 and, and why Sunnis and Kurds stuck to their uh, core parties. And I'm thinking uh, mostly of uh, Khaled al-Ubaidi, who in the 2018 elections, he was the second highest vote getter nationally, and he didn't end up getting anything either in the legislative or, or executive branches other than a seat as an MP. So I think there was a shift in 2018, and we shifted back in 2021. So what I'd say is the political discourse shifted in 2018, but the underlying political landscape um, didn't move very far at all. So even if you take, for example, the Nasser phenomenon, I mean, Nasser wasn't a cross-sectarian party, it was an alliance made up of Shia parties and Sunni parties. And of course, Nasser broke up very quickly um, after the elections. And so beyond the political discourse, I don't think there was a meaningful shift in, in the politics of Iraq. Um, and that's why I'm hesitant to say that um, Iraq reverted back to identity politics. I just don't think that it moved beyond it at any point in time. Hamza, if you can tackle the point of the need to have two-thirds in order to reach quorum to elect a president and if it's healthy for Iraqi democracy. Yeah, I mean, the two thirds was put in in the Constitution, you know, by the by those who wrote the Constitution, mostly from the Kurdish uh, policymakers. And it was their attempt to kind of prevent uh, tyranny of the majority. The The numbers are clear that Shia Arabs are 50 plus one in Iraq. And to, you know, they went in in 2003 uh as allies, but, you know, they, they thought through that, you know, this might not always be the case. And to ensure that they would need to be involved in the major decisions moving forward at all times, this requirement was put in place. And what's interesting about this election is I, I, we go back to there's a, there's a divide among the Kurdish parties. And so this is the first time that the law is actually uh, hindering government formation, not because the Kurds are being excluded, but because the Kurdish parties are split. And I think that's a very uh, important point to make, which also adds to the discussion we're having about rhetoric and, you know, whether we move past ethno-sectarianism. Uh, the KDP, um, if you look at their rhetoric this time around, are, you know, just, you wouldn't, you wouldn't think that five years ago they held a a referendum for independence. They're going on about being a major political player in Iraqi politics. They were one of the major players in, in setting up the new Iraq and having, in devising the constitution and that they always give Iraq a chance, even, even with the Baathis, for example. They've, they've made this point on national television and that they're going to do that once again. So it's really interesting to see how narratives can be drawn in favor 
of 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 what wants to be achieved. Muhammad, isn't the stalemates and 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 horse trading and things like that? Isn't that just part of any government formation process and any normal democracy? So what if it takes us six months? It takes uh, Germany several months, and it takes uh, Belgium even longer than it uh, takes Iraq. What's the rush? Yeah, I mean you're right when you say that this is basically part of politics. Um, the thing with Iraq is that uh, this has always been the case, and uh, people are sort of fed up with that. And that's also a lot of interest on, at stake here. We have the budget that haven't hasn't been. And passed. Um, there are so many other things that happened during this transitionary period because of lack of oversight and uh, lots of shuffling between, between different governors and uh, questioning ministers, which should have happened <laughs> in the past years, not in this transitional period. And a lot of things basically um, are, are out of control. And there are also studies, I think, uh, Hamza once wrote about this, that uh, during the transitionary period, um, you have the highest chance of violence. And this is basically the case in Iraq. Mohammed, that's an interesting point. Hamza, does this naturally mean that consensus governments are what's best for the Iraqi people for us to be able to have a stable government for at least three and a half, four years? I mean, they're not ideal for what the vision Iraqis have for their country. But reality on the ground is we hold elections and we keep coming up with a very divided political political class, a political representation. And so you bear the seeds you sow. So that's uh, what Iraq is dealing with now. Instead of blaming it on the, the divided political spectrum, you know, ideally you'd have a movement rise up out of here that can unite the people and move beyond this. But we're just not there yet. And I think that's an important point to make. We're not there yet. And being a nascent democracy um, that's come out of a lot of conflict, upsetting the informal agreements, can form a danger in Iraq. And Iraq is no stranger to violence. And that's kind of what's being said. So it's not, it's not what's argued that this is the best for Iraq, but this is the best out of the current situation that we have. Um, you know, ideally, I think everyone would would have preferred a political party coming out and winning fifty plus one seats, but that's just not the case. So you got to make do with what you have. And there's an argument being made in certain Washington policy circles, think tanks, that are making this divide in Iraq black and white, east versus west. And it's very important to kind of step back and and look at it and say that's not necessarily the case. And trying to paint it so simply is uh, is foolish. What's interesting for me on that point is that those same people that are pushing for a political divide amongst the Shia are also pushing for a unified stance amongst the, amongst the Kurds. And they've said it point blank that dividing the Shia means weakening Iran in Iraq. Ali, could you elaborate on this and and tell us if you agree with that assessment or not and why looking at Iraq through the lens of Iran is very dangerous and and very simplistic so i just go back to what hamza said about um we're not there yet and the question is where is there 
and and this drives at sort of a, a really fundamental question, which is what kind of country um, do we want? Um, I mean, what is the vision for our country? And I don't think there's a short answer to this. Um, I, I don't think that we can sort of encapsulate this in a sentence or two, because people um, view um, the country in, in different ways, and they have different expectations about um, what the country should deliver um, to them. Um, ha- having said that, I think there is a sort of lowest common denominator that everyone can agree on, um, which is, you know, the fact that the state should provide um, sort of a bare minimum of services um, for for everyone um, and to protect the most vulnerable in society, for example. But these are all governance issues, right? Um, I mean, there are lots of sort of specialists in, in public policy that debate these issues all, all the time, including ourselves. So, for example, you know, what kind of economy would be best suited for, for the country? How do you enhance service provisions? Um, do you engage in decentralization or not? Um, you know, we all have these debates, um, but there are other f- more fundamental questions um, that we need to ask, such as, you know, what is the identity of the country that we aspire to create? And, and of course, the answer is, well, it depends who, who you're asking. And so going back to your question about, you know, what should um, our position be um, when it comes to the three-way alliance and the unity of the, the Shia parties, well, you know, again, it, it depends on how you conceive of the state and what your priorities are going forward. So if your fundamental priority is to reform the state, I think we can all agree that the three-way alliance made up of, you know, the KDP, Taqaddum and the Sadrists are by no means, you know, reform-minded. Um, and so, you know, that is going to have um, uh, almost certainly a negative impact in terms of reforming Iraq's economy, in terms of enhancing service provisions, in terms of boosting growth of the private sector. Um, having said that, um, you know, there are other considerations as well. Um, and, and this is why, you know, you have people on both sides of, of the aisle. Many people who are supporting this three-way alliance uh, are viewing it um, through this Iran lens. And... Um, that's because you know for them the priority is to you know reduce the 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 influence of iran in iraq um that for them is what they see as fundamental to uh, moving the country forward so whatever side you're on i think as an iraqi you always have to take a holistic perspective on things um and figure out what are the ramifications um uh, overall um for for the country mohammed i am looking at the politics of this what if it's just them having the vision to take advantage of the 2021 elections and have a vision for power and acquiring it and then pushing that agenda through. And that's what we've seen in the last six months. What would you say to that? Yeah, I mean, uh, there are quite a few indicators that this could be the case. So in my opinion, um, the the fear that the other side has about this is not unsubstantiated. And they are basically also not hiding it. Uh, just like we said before, so in the, in the, the narrative this time is different. They are basically being very clear about what they want to do. And we have also seen also a lot of Freudian slips, um, that we haven't seen before, uh, for those who of, co- of course follow Iraqi media. And, uh, lots of people are really not interested in reform, to be honest. Um, we have a saying in Arabic, it says, If you don't have it, you can't give it, all right? Uh, what sort of vision of reform does this Tripatriot Alliance have? I'm not saying the other side has a vision of reform. They don't have it as well. But uh, when the Tripatriot Alliance keeps saying that we want to reform, we want to change, 
what does it what does it offer to the people? Do they have a clear plan? Do they have a policy that people can look at and uh, and really say, okay, so this looks like like reform. Maybe we can give it a try. None of this. The only thing that has been talked about since since the elections is that we want to have a majority government. So it's basically change for the sake of change. No change for the sake of of improving things, really. And uh, obviously, we have to ask questions, right? Is this in our interest or is this maybe for the interest for for the Americans or or the Western generals or even the East? Uh, Where is the Iraqi interest here? Uh, Why do we have to create alliances that serve beyond the border but doesn't serve the Iraqi citizen? And uh, I have many questions, to be honest, but uh, one thing for me is clear that I don't think that there is an attempt to reform. Uh, there's rather an attempt to get more power. And once they have done this power, then we don't know really what they are going to do with it. And I don't think it's going to be a positive thing. Hamza, government after government, we hear lip service being paid to reforms. Maybe they haven't been able to achieve any because they have been consensus governments. Why don't we just give a majority government a chance and see if they do reform? I mean, they should be given a chance if they're able to do it. At the end of the day, I go back to the point, you know, we have elections and these are the numbers we have to deal with. Um, Sadr won 73 seats. It's not like he won a majority and is being, you know, his right to form a government uh, is being revoked. So I think it, it, we need to go back and, and look at reality. Had a political party, whether they want to reform or not, won enough seats to do this, that's a whole different issue. The fact of the matter is, no one did. We're still a politically divided uh, nation. And so we have to deal with the numbers. So if I could jump in here, I think this might be a good opportunity to discuss the tripartite alliance. um, Because, as I said, I mean, I personally didn't see this coming. I didn't think it would actually materialize. And um, even though there were quite early indications that um, this was something that Sadr wanted to do. So if you think back to his statement from the 21st of October, where he talks about a national majority government and outlines what it means in terms of um, a government and an opposition. Um, but for me, the, the calculation was that um, not that Sadr didn't want to do it, um, or that he was just posturing or, 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 or grandstanding, um, but actually that um, Halbusi and and Barzani would not take that risk of of joining an alliance with Sadr. Um, number one, because you know Sadr has you know a pretty notorious um, track record when it comes to his alliances, and you just have to look at um, the experience of the Iraqi Communist Party. Um, but secondly, I mean, this sort of a move, it's very high stakes. Um, there's a lot of risk involved um, because what essentially you're doing if you're the KDP or your Taqaddum is you're, you're picking a side from within the Shia house. And um, the, the whole point of the alliance is to, to really sideline the remaining uh, components of, of, of the Shia political landscape. Um, and, and, and this is, this is a very risky move. I mean, especially if it doesn't pay off. And, and so, you know, there's a calculation here that needs to be made as to what is the probability that are, of success. Now, of course, um, in, in the event that they are successful, that they are able to form a government, um, there's a huge payoff involved because what it means is imagine if you're, um, Halbusi, you 
essentially get to dominate the the Sunni political landscape. And likewise for um, Barzani within the the Kurdish landscape. Uh, And and this is also the goal of of Sadr, is to um, be the um, primary uh, interlocutor with the Sunnis and Kurds um, on behalf of the Shia of Iraq. Um, So it's a very ambitious move. But as I said, the failure to push through and and to form the government can really backfire and potentially can lead to major backlash um, for for those uh, members of of, of the alliance. So this goes back to my point that they had a vision for obtaining power and then utilizing it to the full extent and and having uh, a hold on power within the ministries within the committees uh, at the legislative branch. And, you know, if they have that vision and they've got the numbers, why not? Yeah, absolutely. At the end of the day, it's about power. And the problem with consensus politics is that if you're one of those players, your power tends to get checked by the other counterparts. And so, you know, if you're very ambitious, uh, it can be very frustrating to be part of a consensus government. Um, because everyone ends up cancelling each other out. Um, but of course, it is a, probably a more stable option in terms of you know an elite pact. But if you're willing to take the risk and cut free from consensus politics, the returns obviously are potentially huge. Mohammed Ali brings up a good point about stability. Would a government formed by the KDP, Halbusi, and Sadr lead to stability? Or... Will the 130 or so MPs that are representing those not part of that tripartite alliance simply use their positions and their voices to keep a new government handcuffed? Um, it's a good question, really. And, uh, you, you know, when you, when you look at, at what's happening here, um, as I said, there are, there is no vision. Okay. So the only goal is to just form this government and distribute the different posts amongst each other. But then, uh, when that's only the goal and the goal has been achieved, then everyone returns to their own interests and to their own vision and to their own way of, of basically running things, just like it happened in the past. And of course, that way is not unified. That way um, does not have a developmental aspects. Uh, it's just about feeding the different patronage networks, and that's it. And uh, cashing in from different uh, sources, and uh, until the next government. And of course, when 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 your goals are like that, then you are going to um, have conflict amongst each other. And we have already seen the conflicts. I mean, when you look, for instance, uh, at this path that are happening from time to time within the, the Siada uh, coalition. Um, problems with Halbusi and, and the Sadrist. So obviously th- there are no real signs for stability. And we should not also forget that our environment is not stable. The region is not stable. Iraqi politics um, is not stable. We have, for instance, the issue of the American presence. Um, we have the issue of uh, oil and gas exports. Uh, and how they happen and why they end up in Israel, for instance. These are big issues. And even if that three-patriot alliance were actually uh, quite unified, I think the environment itself is not stable. It's interesting that you bring up oil being sold in an entity that Iraq does not recognize. Hamza, when it comes to the federal Supreme Court's recent performance, is the timing politicized 
or are they finally doing the right things and it's better late than never? I mean, I don't think anyone other than the courts have the answer to this. I've heard I've heard it all that, you know, it's uh the courts finally getting their act together. I've heard that it's politicized. I've heard that it's the courts getting their act together, but their timing is politicized. At the end of the day, it kind of goes back to, you know, when you ask me, are the Southerners uh, serious about reforms? Is the tripartite serious about reforms? Um, it's the same thing with this. What, were they were they politicized or not? At the end of the day, what what is the result? The result is their ruling, and that's what you have to go by. And so you have to move forward. And what does their ruling mean moving forward? I think is a more important question at hand. And what we're seeing is these issues being pushed to the side till a government is formed, which kind of adds to the uh, the importance of why a new government needs to be formed to tackle these issues. Ali, when it comes to the Supreme Court decisions, the timing, the uh, the way things are being decided, um, are they politicized? So I would agree with Hamza here. I think we need to be very cautious about how we analyze uh, what's going on in the judiciary. Um, number one, because, you know, as analysts, we tend to focus on the government, on parliament, on parties, on civil society. Uh, but I think rarely do we actually take an in-depth look at what's going on in the judiciary. Um, and I think what we really need are legal scholars who follow dynamics um, in a very granular level um, within the judiciary, who are able to enlighten us about how decisions are made there, uh, the, the power dynamics, and so on and so forth. And, you know, what we're seeing at the moment is a sort of knee-jerk reaction among some analysts um, who, you know, whenever a, a Supreme Court ruling is issued, um, they will say, oh, there you go, that's um, additional proof that the judiciary is beholden to a particular uh, party or a particular political force. But I think for me, that sort of analysis is just too speculative. Um, you have to remember that the Supreme Court's first um, major ruling after the elections was to uh, throw out the case um, to annul the election results. Um, you know, that didn't favor the coordination framework. Um, that favored, um, obviously, the the parties within the, the, the tripartite alliance. And, and then also the second ruling, which was to declare the January 9th parliamentary session to be legal. That was a session where Halbusi and his two deputies uh, were elected. Again, that favored um, Sadr and, and his allies. Um, and so I think, you know, trying to sort of oversimplify um, you know, how the judiciary operates and the, the sorts of political pressures that are, are imposed on it. Um, it it's, a, it's a very, I think it's a very complex issue to try to come to terms with. One thing I would say is that if you look at the judiciary's performance overall, uh, what is very clear is that um, it's really trying to assert its authority as uh, one of the three branches of, of government. Thanks, Ali. Mohammed, if you can talk to us about the elections law. Did it lead to better representation, and is it more reflective of the constituents? Well, I don't think it did, really. I mean, the idea of the law was good. The idea of the law um, was sort of um, forcing political parties to have community leaders. Um, but the problem is that our reality um, isn't ready also for this as well. Um, we have parties, for instance, like the KDP or the Sadrists, who um, have strong um, local representatives, but they have also some coercive methods to make the constituents basically vote. And we know about this. We have heard about this for a very long time now. Uh, obviously, nobody did anything about it because the state 
um, did not have the capacity to enforce. And IHEC itself, um, I think, um, is not competent. Uh, it never has been. And sadly, it, it's a very important institution in Iraq, but we have a lot of problems with, with IHEC. And this actually leads to a lot of problems uh, in the political process itself. So while I, I actually like the idea of the law, and I think on the long term it, it would uh, be beneficial, what we're having now is um, a disrepresentation. Um, the parties who um, have better methods to coerce their voters get a larger number of seats in the parliament, um, despite the fact that they don't have um, lots of votes. So that's a problem in Iraq, that you might have good laws, but if you do not have the proper framework to implement them, um, then no the no good law is going to be effective. I agree with that. And Hamza, would you say good laws without proper data leads to bad decisions? I mean, we went into the 2021 elections with 83 districts, and we haven't had a census in decades. So isn't that just a recipe for more disaster? I mean, I think the, there was, there's been a clear call for people to have, uh, clear representation. Uh, and I think that that was a positive of the new electoral law. I think it allowed people, um, outside of the entrenched political parties to have a, a better chance at running and winning a seat. And so these are all positives. And so I don't want to take away from that because we haven't had a credible census in decades. Uh, the fact of the matter is, if we had a census, it would have been better to help uh, form these districts. So again, they're not perfect, um, but what it is, I think, I think it was a positive development, and you're actually now seeing it a, as a, a crucial point for the upcoming Kurdistan regional government uh, elections and whether they want to go ahead and adopt the same form of district voting representation or not. So they definitely have, they definitely have an impact. And I see, I see some positive from there. And it cut, it might, might be also a way back to get, getting provincial elections returning now that we've been able to have smaller districts and which makes it easier for provincial elections to be held, which we haven't had since 2013. And the provincial councils were dissolved in 2019 despite being part of the constitution. So, you know, they're not, they're not removed entirely just yet. And there are MPs, newly elected MPs that are, that, that plan to push for getting them back. Mohammed, what are your final thoughts? Well, I believe that, um, this is actually, um, a stalemate that, uh, is quite serious and very much different from the past. And I hope that it gets resolved in a way that doesn't jeopardize the long-term stability of the country, despite the fact that we don't have a, a very stable country anyway, but uh, it can get worse. And this is, I think, something that few people think about. It can get worse. And we should not um, compromise whatever stability that we have uh, in order to satisfy some regional or international agenda. I think Iraq politicians need to be careful and Iraqi citizens also need to be careful on this. Um, we have to sort of um, formulate our own view and stability comes first and we do not want violence and uh, I think number one priority is to prevent that. Thanks, Mohammed. I, I agree completely. Hamza, any final thoughts? 
My final thoughts are, you know, it's reinforced what uh, Ali and Muhammad have said. There is a lot at stake. And while things are at a stalemate, I think that goes to show you just how more complicated the issue is. It's not so much as who's pro-Iranian, who's anti-Iran. There's a lot more being discussed. And I think we're going to see that in the coming days after Ramadan where things begin to heat up again. And, uh, you know, summer starts to come. People, citizens become a little more frustrated. And that might start putting uh, pressure on Iraqi politicians to, to form a government. It's not going to be pressure from outside. I agree completely with what you said, Hamza. There is a lot more to Iraqi politics than what we see in uh, mainstream media, in what's written about Iraq in English. And this is why I personally look forward to your future publications and tweets and articles. So Ali, Muhammad, and Hamza, thank you very much for joining us today. That's it for this week's episode. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify to receive notifications about a new episode from Araqi Voices. Until next time, take care.